purple one, I think. Okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, hello. My name is AJ Lewis. I'll be having a conversation with Julian Talamantes Verlaski for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. Uh, this is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans identifying people. Uh, it's March 24th. 2017, um, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library in Midtown. Hello. Hi, AJ. Uh, can you just say, uh, tell us your, your name, your age, gender, gender pronouns? Uh, my name is Julian Talamantes Perlaski. Um, I'm 38. Uh, gender pronouns is a long story, um, and I don't know how to answer that straight forwardly. I prefer to use gender neutral pronouns. Um, I've often used male pronouns. I grew up having female pronouns applied to me. Um, for a long time, I tried to use Z as a pronoun, X-E, and I kind of invented or like cobbled together a, a pronoun paradigm based on that, like Z's or some self. You know, like a lot of people have used like C and here and things like that, or Z, you know, Z E. But I liked XE, I thought it looked cool. And I was studying medieval literature and I learned that she as a pronoun didn't really come into major use until the 1400s and you know really after like the printing press in 1450 and so I realized there are all these like that there was a history in the English language of pronouns that were ambiguous like in Old English there was hey and heyo and hey could mean he or she so Anyway, I tried to use Z and get people to use it, but it's, it wasn't fully successful. It seemed like people were much more comfortable using he, um, and so they did. Um, and so I kind of gave up on that, though it's still something that I use in writing. And it seems like as of this moment in 2017, they, as a gender-neutral pronoun, is becoming much more normalized and widely used. So they is great. Um, I like, personally, for me, I like it as a pronoun. And I don't know, this might be controversial um, because people will say like, oh, it's degrading or whatever. But I think that it is beautiful because it's sort of like a great leveler like I'm it the wastebasket is it the lampshade is it the animals are it and I it is what I tend to prefer but I've noticed that it people are uncomfortable using it for that reason because mm -hmm. they don't want to be insulting mm -hmm. even though I've said that that's what I want so yeah, that's interesting the last few times people have asked me my pronoun preference in a public way and I told them it and I'm not kidding um, they 
avoided the use of pronouns, so that was interesting. That was interesting. I want to ask you more about humans and relations with humans and non-humans and other things later. But okay, um, uh, can you describe just your gender as you experience it now? Sure, I can try. Um, I my my gender feels multiple. I you know identify, I guess, as a two-spirit person and also like a non-binary person, though all of these terms are unsatisfying in different ways. Um, as you know very well, we're often forced to choose one or the other, like even just now, as before this interview, there's binary bathrooms in this building. And I was asked which one I wanted to use, and I said, the men's room and that's the one that I use if I have to choose so for practicality's sake and for the sake of filling out forms and for legal things I'm male and I'm legally male but I and and I have I guess what you would call like a male presentation um, but I, I don't identify as a man and and my gender is um, androgynous. Awesome. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like where you're from, where you grew up? Yeah, um, I'm from a town called Encinitas, which is in San Diego County. And I, I grew up there, it's a, it's a beach town. And I ran away from home when I was 16 and came to Bay Area, uh, first to Santa Cruz and then to Oakland and Berkeley, and the East Bay. Um, yeah, so that was where I grew up. Do you, Tom, do you have like a family of origin that you were, that you were close to as a child or thereafter? Uh, I'm an only child, and but I have a lot of cousins and extended family. Um, I spent a lot of time in the summer in the Mescalero Reservation in New Mexico, um, but I mainly grew up in, in San Diego until I was like a teenager and then the Bay Area, which is sort of where I grew up as a writer. Mm -hmm. So I, it, it, the Bay Area kind of feels more like my home than Southern California mm -hmm. does. I don't know if you've ever been to San Diego, but it's kind of a a racist and queerphobic place. Is that why you decided to leave? Yeah, I mean, partially, but more particularly, it was because my my parents were not okay with me being queer, so that was why I left. What, what did you have? Like, what were the most important relationships for you when you were either a child or in early adulthood? Well, I was a really like lonely, like melancholy child. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, so I would say, you know, but growing up, my m most important person, and I would say the person who's still the most important to me is my grandmother. Um, and, and she was the first person in my family who really 
understood my queerness, not only in terms of my sexuality, but like also my transness. And, you know, she still has to like explain it to family members. Um, and, you know, she's also a poet and a scholar like I am. So we kind of connect in that way. So I'd say she was like the most important person to me as a child and, and as an adult. Um, and then I really didn't, you know, start to have meaningful social relationships until I was like in my late teens. Um, I was really like kind of a, a loner as a young person, just like terribly shy and um, introverted. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things were you interested in, like as a kid? As a, as a kid? Mm -hmm. um, Music and surfing, um, yeah, my dad and actually all my dad's family are surfers and he taught me how to surf and um, like all my aunts and uncles on that side of the family. And they were really sweet, like, you know, even when I was like too small to paddle out, like my uncles would let me like hold on to their ankles and they would like paddle me out in the ocean. I love to swim. I learned to swim before I learned to walk, and I just grew up basically in the water. And I loved music, too. Um, my dad was and is a piano teacher, so I grew up kind of playing classical music. Um, but then, like, when I started to become, like, an agitated adolescent, I was like, this stupid you know like I don't like I didn't I didn't want to take lessons from him him anymore I wanted like a different teacher but we were really poor so like they couldn't afford that and so I stopped playing piano and I would kind of like secretly play but I stopped taking lessons from him when I was like 11 or 12 and then I didn't play music like all through my teenage years um, until I was like 19 and I discovered country music mm. yeah. were there like uh, communities that you were a part of as a kid yeah um, I mean it was really hard to find queer people um, once I sort of figured out that I was one um, in my junior high school or like in my high school um, there wasn't really there was like this kind of trend of like in my high school like girls who were bisexual but like had boyfriends you know that was like it was kind of like the trendy thing to be bisexual but no one seemed like I don't know which is not to say that they weren't they weren't but um, they weren't like at risk visibly in the same way that like I was or like visibly there weren't really like visibly queer people um, but I had this other friend who was gay and she like you know discovered that there was this like gay and queer youth group in um, Hillcrest which is like the gay part of San Diego mm -hmm. and so we would like take the bus down there and we like you know met these other like gay kids and um 
but I didn't have a car. It was so far away. Like it didn't really feel like a community, but it was like, it, it was a revolution in that like they, people existed who were like, and they happened also to be like really cool people too. Um, so that was like the one like taste of that that I got as a, as like a tween or like a young person. But it wasn't really until I came to Santa Cruz um, as an undergrad and then to like the Bay Area that, you know, I discovered there were like, you know, groups of like indigenous people and groups of like queer people who were like, you know, excited about bonding together. So you went to the, how old were you when you went to the Bay Area? I was 16 when I went to Santa Cruz. What was that like? It was really cool. Like, there was like, it rained. Like, I don't think it rained. Like, most of my childhood, you know, was like intense drought in San Diego. So, and I don't know if you've ever been to Santa Cruz, but it's like, not only is it on the beach, but there's like redwoods and it's like a really beautiful microclimate. Um, they call it the banana belt because it's like also sunny, but it rains. And so I was like, oh my God, like there's like green plants and like, and people of different colors and like people of different gender, you know, sexualities. And it just seemed, and like art- artists and like, like cool bands like came through town. And it was just like, a, to me, it was just like a flowering of, humanity and nature mm. and like it was like so refreshing after San Diego. Can you tell me about like a memory that stands out from like when you first arrived in this new place? <sighs> when I first arrived in, in Santa Cruz, um, I remember like I had actually gone to visit Santa Cruz with my best friend at the time who's a little bit older than me. He was like 19 and I was 15 or 16 and he was like looking at schools to transfer to and so we went up to Santa Cruz to visit and um, I just remember like we went to a screening of Reservoir Dogs I think it's Reservoir Dogs the Tarantino film where there's like at one point someone has like a banana slugs t-shirt on which is the um, which is the mascot of Santa Cruz which is so awesome because the banana slug is like a hermaphroditic slug, <laughs> you know, it's like the opposite of what you would want as a sports mascot. So it just shows how like how anti all of that they are. And there's like no Greek system at Santa Cruz or anything. Um, and I just remember like being in the like bathroom before we like went to see the movie on campus, and like all of, there was like graffiti about like. That had like there were like Marx quotes and the poetry and like you know radical political statements and I was like oh my god like this graffiti is so smart <laughs> like everyone is so smart and cool here <laughs> and so when he decided to go there that was you know around the time that I had like ran away from home and I was like I'm just gonna come with you um, so I came with him to Santa Cruz and you know I was really lucky because I was like I had good grades I was like a good student like despite you know being 
having a lot of like social problems around like being a, a queer kid. Um, so I was able somehow to like talk my way in to school. So instead of being on the streets, like I might have been hustling or whatever, like I was able to start school early. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this letter to the administration about how I was like oppressed and like it was true, but it was like, you know, and and how I should be admitted mm-hmm. early. And my aunt Maria was a reentry student there with with my cousins, her her three boys, and she was living on campus and she was like she knew someone in the administration office and she's like, talk to this person. And the person was like, you need to write a letter. And like, so somehow it just like all fell together that I was able to start my schooling. Um, and, and it was like a real blessing because I, you know, you and I are both well aware how like when, when people like us like run away from home, um, they often end up in really precarious situations, so I was really blessed in that regard. What did you tell them about how you were oppressed? I told them that, like, my um, parents were homophobic and that I had to leave home and, but that I was, like, a really good student and they should let me in to their program. Uh, And so there was something I don't know, like somehow I got it together, like you have to be 18 to take the GED, but there's something called the California High School Proficiency Exam that you only have to be 16 to take, and so I took that, and um, there's something called early admissions under special circumstances, and so that was, that was how that occurred. You mentioned having like social problems attendant to being like a queer kid and sort of figuring that out and going to school. Could you tell me a little about what that was like? Uh, yeah, um, you know, I was just like verbally harassed a lot um, for not looking like how, how I was supposed to look, you know. Um, I was called a lot of names, I was like, you know, confronted physically a couple of times and um yeah it just wasn't like it didn't feel safe you know and like to even like be a person walking down the hall like let alone like a person that could function socially with like friends who could like date people and you know what I mean so it just caused me to be really um even more insular than I already was. Did you like being in school? In high school? Uh, Once you started uh, college. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of like, yeah, it was like a safety net culturally and intellectually. And, you know, I could take poetry classes and, you know, and, and I was really interested in literature. So... Yeah, I liked it. I didn't. I can't say that I like worked that hard, but I liked being in that environment. I didn't know what else to do. I like didn't have any skills, you know. And how long? How long were you in school for? 
Uh, I was in school. How how long was I in school at Santa Cruz? Um, I was there from '95 to '99, and then I moved to Berkeley and um, did an MFA at Mills from '99 to 2001, and then I worked f- for a year or two, and then I started. Uh, grad school again at Berkeley in 2003 mm-hmm. to 2006 and that's when I moved to New York. And that was the PhD mm-hmm. program. Were there like relationships or communities that were especially important to you in the Bay Area? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was like, it was like the Bay Area where, when I moved to the Bay Area proper, that I first heard about there being poets like people who were poets in the world like I had been writing poetry since I was a kid but for some reason I just thought like poetry was was like this thing from the 19th century that like people didn't really do anymore like people may have like may write poems and put them in a drawer but I didn't think that it was like a really thing that you could be in the world anymore I know that sounds like terribly naive but I really didn't think it was a thing and I remember when I first moved to Berkeley, um, I met this friend of a friend in a record shop and he was like, oh yeah, I like the experimental poetry community in San Francisco. And I was like, what? Like, there's a poetry community? Like, it just like blew my mind open. And, and then I started like going to readings and, and meeting poets. Um, so there was that. And then there was like, um, the American Indian Graduate Association and like meeting people from different nations and that was like that was really like nurturing for me and you know and then many years later like connecting to the um, the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Society so like able to kind of like you know, not have to choose to be like Indian or mixed or like or like queer, but to be able to like be both. Yeah. What um, was, yeah. Was the Bay Area American Indian Two Spirit Society like? Well, they're still going on, and and um, they have put together the very first um, Two Spirit powwow, and it's now it's um, the only one that exists. In, in the U.S., um, so that it's like every February. I think there's now been seven or eight of them. Did did that grow yeah. out of gay American Indians in the Bay Area, or is it a difference? Yes, I think it did. Yeah. Uh, what like what were your experiences with them? Like, like what'd you do? Um. Well, um. The last time I was living out in California, I'd been involved with the the drum, so just like singing singing and you know people would ask us to go to different events and like do they there was more and more interest in having like an indigenous presence for things um so they would act like or we would like sing at memorials or like at protests or you know things like that yeah um 
were you uh, working also when you were living out there, or was it just like like we doing grad student stuff and teaching and things like that? Um, was I working? Um, I mean, I suppose I was um, when I was in graduate school. I had some like just pretty terrible like office jobs and stuff like that when I was a student at Mills. Um, and then when I graduated, the dot-coms were crashing, and so I kind of had this like useless MFA in poetry, and you know, I was like a substitute teacher and a temp. Mm -hmm. So I had basically like the worst jobs that you could. What was the worst job you had? Imagine. I mean, they were just, it was like the temp jobs, like, you know, like, well, I would say actually what's worse than temping, because temping you just sort of go in and you're like there for a day in the office and nobody cares about you and like, you're you know, so that's really not that bad. It's just, and I could write, you know, so it was like not that bad, but actually the worst was substitute teaching and, you know, you do K, or I did like K through 12 and I was like just in my early 20s at the time. So um, when I would teach, high school I would get mistaken for a student and I was like perceived as a female person so I like also got no respect for being young and like apparently female um and but actually like teaching the junior high students was the worst because they just I think there's something like neurologically about people that age where like and I think they've done studies on this. Like, they literally have not consolidated their sense of morals. Like, they don't care. They don't care. And I was, I didn't care, like, you know, about that kind of stuff when I was their age either. So they're very dangerous <laughs> people. <laughs> and it was um, really uh, humiliating often and terrifying. Um, yeah, but it wasn't uninteresting. I'll say that. Yeah. Was there like a time like in those years where you like you know, like all imperfect terms obviously but was there a time where like you sort of like became aware of like being trans or like started identifying around trans or something else like in that way? Yeah, um, I didn't even know what a trans person was like for a long time, and I know that it's like like even when I went to Santa Cruz, I was like. 16 when I went there and there surely were people who were trans but I it just like wasn't a meme in the world like and so it kind of didn't enter my consciousness right away and I remember there being one person my fresh person year at Santa Cruz there was like a person who was trans and I was kind of aware of them um, and I think it was a F to M person, um, and I just kind of clocked their existence, but like, but I didn't really like think about it as like a possibility. Like, it just didn't seem like a possibility that you could be trans, or like at least not to me. And and it was while I was there that they added there was like the GLB Center, um, the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual Center, and. And it was some time during the mid-late 90s while I was a student there that they added the T. I think it might have been my like second 
year there, so maybe 96 or 97, that the GLB became the GLBT center. And I'm sure now it's like GLBTQLMNOP. Like it's, I'm sure it's got a lot more letters now, but like, so it was just beginning to kind of like enter my consciousness, I would say, in my late teens. And then, um, but I didn't really, and you know, people just like assumed I was a lesbian because I was like, they thought I was female and I sort of dressed in this kind of male way, like, but like, but I didn't like, you know, they, I think those things sort of got conflate, conflated, you know what I'm saying? And so I didn't, I like, like I said, like, I really didn't think of it as like something that was an option that you could do. Um, until I was like in my 20s mm-hmm. um, and then something began to like come to my awareness that I didn't like being perceived as a female person it felt, it felt wrong and and for a long time I was just like well there's not how much I can do about that mm-hmm. and then it began and then it gradually entered my awareness that there were things I could do um, and you know I remember just kind of like feeling the increasing trauma of being read or like what I felt to be like misread as a female person and like it would make me cry you know like and I just suddenly was like, it, it came to my realization that I could do something about it and that, I, and that I didn't want, like I particularly didn't want strangers to have that kind of power over me um, to like make me cry just by like referring to me as she or something. Um, so that's when I began to kind of take steps or like or transition and, and and you know I first changed my name and I remember someone asking me at the time like um, are you transitioning and I was like and I was kind of shocked or like or I didn't know how to answer like I felt like the question was like presumptuous or but then the more I thought about it, I was like, oh yeah, like, I guess I am, like, I'm like linguistically transitioning, or mm-hmm. like, I'm like taking control of, of language, like, you know, like naming is power, and I'm like taking that power for myself. And, and that was sort of okay for a while. And then like, I don't know, someone I knew was like, oh, like, I see that you have like a new identity now or something. Mm-hmm. And for some reason that really bothered me. Like I was like, you know what? No, like I'm the same person. I've just like realigned language to fit with my identity. Like I'm more who I am. I don't have a different identity now. Um, so for me, it really like the language part was always like more important or I don't know. I don't know if that's right. It's like, language in the body are so 
tied together that it's hard to make that distinction. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like a sort of like there's this like social construction of like transitioning? I'm putting it in scare quotes. Like, do you feel sort of like a sense of continuity around the way that you understood yourself, sort of before and after? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, do I feel a sense of continuity of like who I was before? Like how you understood yourself yeah. now? Um, I mean, I think transitioning allowed for me to calm down a little bit about like the trauma that I would experience. You know, and part of it, and, like, and I know that this is maybe not a good reason, but like, I implied that like part of the reason I transitioned was because I didn't want strangers to have this power to like upset me. And you're pointing to yourself like mm-hmm. you understand that. Um, but I feel like that's a really bad reason. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Um, but it's the reality. You just kind of want to live your life and not like ha- have the like server at like the cafe be able to like reduce you to tears you know like when you don't even know that person like they don't care about you like why should they be able to like you know pierce your very soul in this way over something so banal like as like a pronoun or something so I don't know, and then like you can go into the whole thought experiment of like, well, if I like was a hermit and I like lived in a cave, like would I need to transition then? Like, you know, but again, I think that's like a kind of futile thought experiment because like, of course we are social and that's how we, part of the way that we perceive ourselves is through like the mirror of others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know, I think Part of the difficulty for me was then and still now that I like don't see examples of myself. Like I don't like come across people who are like my pronoun is it or whatever, <laughs> you know, or like or I don't see people that like whose gender seems similar to mine very often or ever. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and it's very, like, the binary is very seductive. Like, um, it's it's the whole basis for every kind of spectrum of pornography, from, like, you know, actual pornography to, like, you know, whatever. It's a cliche, but, like, the cover of magazines or whatever, like, mm-hmm. along with, like, you know, whiteness, right? Um, we see these things glorified. Um, and of course, like in reality, we, we don't, most of us don't haunt those extreme ends of the spectrum, but most of us are like, or most people are like clearly identified towards one end or the other. Um, I don't know. This is like a really roundabout way of answering your question. And I think I'm like avoiding it because I don't know how to answer like, um, do I feel a sense of continuity? That would imply I felt like a, like a stable sense of self, which I, I don't. And part of the reason I don't um, is because like I don't recognize myself in the mirror. And part of the reason why I don't recognize myself in the mirror is that I don't see myself mirrored in the world. Um, so 
I guess, yes, I feel a sense of continuity and that I have like always felt and I can continue to feel like discontinuous and I'm like using a, a temporal term to describe myself but it like feels correct um and yes I feel like I'm the same person you know like my comment earlier about like like having a different identity like I don't think transitioning means I have a different identity I think it means I've like taken control of language and like I've taken control of like my body through like you know various and I said I didn't want to talk about this but like through various like sort of um medical interventions like I've like made changes to my body so I think it's just about like um, a continual like reevaluate. Like there's a there's like a continual reevaluation mm-hmm. of oneself, and unfortunately, like it has to be in relation to others. Yeah, yeah. it just has to be because um, like those are our our mm-hmm. models. Yeah. And when you don't see models, like you're you're on really shifting ground, like you're on really unsteady ground, like hence the importance of like these stories that you're collecting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say like at least for me, like one of the things that's so difficult about finding a discourse around describing these experiences is that the available terms like always seem to locate like the change, the evolution, the transition, the whatever in the person when it's obviously mm-hmm. something that's always in negotiation with the world, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, asking questions like, when did you transition is even just, like, right. locates the problematic, like, in the trans person. Right. You know? um, well, and one of the really interesting things is this idea of location. Mm-hmm. Like, where are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as though, like, trans people are, like, distinct in, like, you know, being located and also in changing that location in relation to context situations. Yeah. And it's a literal problem, too. Like, what bathroom do you use? Like, mm-hmm. what box do you check? Like, yeah, totally. And when you don't feel like the correct place exists, you feel like you're not anywhere, and you feel like you're not a person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you um, When did you come to New York? I came to New York um, for the first time at the end of 2006, and I lived here for eight years, and then I was in California again for like a year and a half in 2015, mm-hmm. 16, and then I came back uh, for a second time in August of last year, so August of 2016. And you were, when you first moved out here, you were, you were dissertating. I was You're dissertating, Finishing yeah. PhD work, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, why did you move to New York? Um, I fell in love with someone here that that's the real reason mm-hmm. what I don't want to say that reason I say oh I'd always want to like come to New York but <laughs> totally <laughs> but I came for love um, and did you find like what kinds of what like scenes and relationships and communities did you develop in New York City I mean New York has everything so I found what I wanted like which was like um, you know, I found the 
the East Coast Two-Spirit Society, um, which was, and they had these like dance, powwow dance classes. So I was like doing dance and that was really healing um, for me because part of my like social anxiety and part of really connect to my gender anxiety like resulted in uh, me never dancing like just feeling like I was too afraid to dance um, so like actually connecting to them that and I must have been like I guess I was didn't really start dancing until I was like almost 30 mm-hmm. you know like and I realized that I loved to dance and that furthermore like Indian dancing and cowboy dancing are like the same, you know, in a lot of ways. Like you lead with your left foot and you count to four, basically. Um, So, and then I found um, pretty soon after I moved here, I found um, country musicians and not only country musicians, but queer country musicians which doesn't seem like, you know, it's not the first thing you'd think of mm-hmm. when you think of New York, but, you know, like we, like I said, like New York has everything, and mm-hmm. so there was even, and there is now, um, as you know, like a, a little niche community of queer country people. Mm-hmm. So um, that was very healing for me also, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we think of like the cliche of country music is that it's, you know, like the place I grew up, like homophobic and racist and and all that stuff. And so to find people who were like, not only not homophobic, but like queer and like, you know, not all white and, you know, and like cool people to boot, so to speak. How did you get into playing country music? Um through the uh, UC Berkeley radio station, CalX, mm-hmm. which I was listening to when I was there, and they played something. They played the Carter family, and they played Ferlin Husky, who was like this Hank Williams imitator, and Hank Williams and Kitty Wells. Mm-hmm. And those were like the first names I was like, because I would like listen to the radio and like keep notes on things I wanted to check out. And so I went to Amoeba Records in Berkeley and there's like a dollar vinyl section. And I like found Kitty Wells, um, who is the queen of country music um, and the Carter family. And but they were doing the like Hank Williams was like doing this thing in his singing. And this was the thing that like really got got to me, got into me. Um, and I didn't know what it was, like, but his voice was breaking or cracking, and I was like, what is that? Like, what? and I tried to ask people, I was like, what is that called? Like, you know, like when he's like breaking this voice like that, and like nobody really knew what I was talking about or could name it. I finally realized it was yodeling, but like, it, it's not like yodelay. It like it's like he's doing it on words, you know. Like, so it's like, so when I tried to like 
write about it, I described it as like substantive yodeling as opposed to like not yodeling on like nonsense syllables. And the thing that's so beautiful about that um, is that it seems to like be a musical or like vocal expression of this extreme kind of emotion, which is to say like what country music is known for, heart, heartbreak, heartache, mm-hmm. heartache and break. Yeah, the breaking of the sound. Yeah, it's like main literal in the voice. Mm-hmm. And you add to that the kind of interesting feature, which I didn't think of till many years later, but when you yodel, you're going from your chest voice to your head voice. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, a male to like a kind of female register. And I was like really interested in that. And I wanted to be able to do it. Like I, w- I was like I wanted, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just like I couldn't find anyone to tell me what it was. Like I definitely couldn't find anyone to teach me how to do it. Mm-hmm. So I just, just tried to do it, and eventually I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was listening to these songs. Furthermore, and I was like, these songs are like really easy structurally. You know, um, there's like three chords. <laughs> it doesn't seem that hard melodically you know and i had not been trained as like a singer and or anything like i didn't know how to do that but i'd been writing poetry and i thought i can i want to sing these songs and so i think i got a guitar when i was like 19 and i basically just figured out how to play g c and d and that was it like that's what was all i needed you know for a while mm-hmm. and then you know and then i learned a and E and like C and F, mm-hmm. but like you know what I mean. Like you can really get by oh, yeah. knowing a handful of chords, and then you can play like any country song. Mm-hmm. Did um, you start writing your own songs then, or not till later? Yeah, and then I so like pretty quickly started writing my own songs since I was like, this is like really easy, and I'm already like writing songs anyway, you know, like by writing poetry and and I was even like I had. I was even, you know, writing rhymed first at that time. So like it was so it was pretty easy to then, you know, start writing songs. Um, and yeah, I mean, as you know, that's what I've been doing ever since. When did you start playing with other people? Um, it was right before I moved to New York. So it was probably like 2004 or five. Mm-hmm. I like. I met this guy on Craigslist, Andy, uh, Handy Andy, um, who played everything, like banjo, guitar, pedal steel, um, you know, and he sang. And so we would just get together and sing and play. And I never really thought about performing. I didn't think I was ready for that. But we did play, like, a, a couple of shows, just the two of us. Um, before I moved to New York. But then I had like gotten the bug and I really wanted to start performing. And so I went to Craigslist again, um, and that's where I started finding these uh, queer country people. And I think I specifically put an ad. No, that's not true. I first met some like random cis straight guy and played with him for a while, but then I was like, I'm just gonna see like, you know, if there's like queer people who are queer who are country, interested in country, and like, and there were, and like, you know, I would say within like six months of moving here, I had like 
got in a band together and you know and was playing started playing and what was the name of the band the low and the lonesome yeah. why did you guys choose that name <laughs> first we were i think we wanted the word lonesome in it or i did and oh there were these like i think it still exists there's like a band name generator website <laughs> yeah. so it's like you put in the word like cow hand and it's like cow hand dove tether <laughs> and the orangutans you know just like it will just and then you hit reload and it just generates all these names um but then um i think it was naomi clark who you've also interviewed or not you but who has been interviewed for this project um who came up with the low and the lonesome, and mm-hmm. she was and she was the drummer. I didn't know that was Naomi's idea. Mm-hmm. So you guys were guitar, drums, pedal, steel. Uh huh, and eventually, fiddle? F- eventually, fiddle. Oh, yeah. yeah, and bass. And bass, yeah. right? right. Uh, and how long did you play with the low and the lonesome? Oh, a, a couple of years, maybe a year and a half, something like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then we kind of split off into different projects. Um, yeah, but those are people I still sort of see and, mm-hmm. and play Part with. The same scenes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, it's not a big scene as you might imagine. I mean, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you played. Did you convene Juan in the Pines immediately after Low in the Lonesome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was like the next project. But kind of in between, I was playing with our dearly departed. Brand Kelly, That's right, yeah. and we had a little <clears throat> old-timey group called the Invert Family. Can, can yeah. you talk a little about the Invert Family singers? Sure. Um, so, Brand Kelly, who um, who died, um, gosh, last year, um, introduced me to uh, a bass player friend of hers and. You know, we would. She and I would just get together because she loved gospel music and old time music, and and we met through like another musician friend, and so we would just like get together and sing the old songs, and then. But she was really good at like um, putting together like mashups of gospel and old time songs, and so she would make these um, wonderful like vocal arrangements and she could always come up with harmony parts and she would like teach me the harmony parts and then I would sing them and I would yeah. sing harmony for her because I was there was no way I was going to sing lead because she had this like giant voice mm-hmm. and I really just wanted to hear her sing but I was kind of a terrible harmony singer or not terrible at it but I was not good at coming up with the harmony parts but she was so we had like a little outfit where she sang and we had sometimes mandolin and Naomi played washboard sometimes we had um, our friend Nell playing fiddle Um, yeah and we didn't do that many shows but um, but I loved I loved playing with Bryn she was she was such a magnificent performer Mm -hmm. and and she brought glory or glory as my friend Andy said it ought to be pronounced when singing yeah. glory. <laughs> I liked, I, I, since we both sang with Brynn, I especially liked uh, like singing with another trans person. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when 
Brent can tell you all the harmonies to sing. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I didn't realize how much it freed up my, I didn't even realize that much that I'd had anxiety about singing with non-trans people and so until I started singing with trans people and I was like, oh, this is so relaxing. <laughs> I feel like I want to ask you more. You said such interesting things about yodeling and, uh, uh, like, both, like, the affective and the sort of bodily, just, like, technical parts of, of country music. And I kind of want to, like, ask you more about, like, what you think is queer about country music. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's something queer about the f fetishization of like loneliness and sadness and you know like one of the tropes or like cliches of country music is like that you are always searching for home and you're like glorifying it in a certain way but there's also this feeling that you can't get home mm -hmm. and I think a lot of trans people, including myself, like feel that quite literally. Um, you know, and then there's this idea of like transcendence, like you're not gonna be home until you go to that other shore. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm using air quotes too. The other shore meaning like mm -hmm. when you meet your maker. Um, and then of course there's like the proclivity for like getting drunk in a lot of these songs which a lot of of us have used as a, a way of escaping our our sadness um, yeah and then I think you know what's what's most common and like and deep in this kind of music is um, is sadness and loneliness but one of the things that I think is so um, healing about it and one of the things that makes country music for me medicine is that it's like, I don't know, like I, th I think of it as like homeopathic medicine or like a vaccine in a way of like you take a small amount of the thing and it inoculates you against the thing. Mm -hmm. So if you like are sad or lonely and you like take this sad music in, inside of you or you like or you like metabolize it by like making it part of your body then it heals you from that thing i guess you always have the danger of like taking too much and then you really are sad. You get sick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it gives you the thing that you're trying to inoculate yourself against. And I've certainly had that, you know, where I like take some too much and like gotten myself into too sad of a state. But but normally I feel like the what what that kind of music has done for me is like really through like the vocalization of the thing. Um which is to say like pain and suffering and loneliness and longing for home and it's like you know it's, it paradoxically heals those longings mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Can you want to talk a little bit more about your poetry and how that's developed over the years? Sure. Um, I mean, it's something that I've always... I can't ever remember, like, not being moved by language. I feel like it's how I've, like, organized my reality. Um, and, you know, I was always really interested in, like, sounds that repeated or sounds that, like, sounded like other things that were interesting, um, which is to say rhyme, although I didn't have a word for that then. And, you know, and, and I would say that, like, that was the great gift that my mother gave to me. Like, my father gave me the gift of, like, the water. And my mother gave me the gift of language. She was always reading and, you know, like, I mentioned, like, we were quite poor growing up, but they, like, got an encyclopedia set for me, like, paid for it in monthly installments, you know? And so whenever there was, like, a question about anything, you know, like, how, like, hi, is Mount Kilimanjaro? Like, we'd, like, look it up in the encyclopedia, and, you know, and she had... And she was always, like, looking up words that we didn't know in the dictionary, and so there's always this sense of, like, an interest in, like, investigating the meaning of words and also, like, even, like, their their roots and, you know, so there was, like, this attention to the, like, materiality of language and also, like, its meaning. And then literature, too, like, she always had, she loves 19th century novels and also 20th century novels and her tastes kind of end in the 1950s or 60s, but, like, you know, there was, like, books around and you know when you read books you sort of get interested in the words that form them and somehow like I came across a reference to Baudelaire when I was like in junior high and I asked for Le Fleur du Mal the flowers of evil for Christmas and got it from my grandmother and and that was sort of like the thing that like turned me on or tuned me in to poetry, even though it was like a translation, whatever, like, um, and I was already writing, but I just kept writing, but it was like very secretive. Like I would like write and I would like put it in a, like I bought with my allowance, like one of those like file cabinets that locks, you know? And like, so it was very, very like secret and like hermetic for me. Um, and so it took me years and years to kind of like come out or like eventually, you know, share my work with other people. And um, and then, like I said, I, I when I moved to Berkeley, I realized that people were actually that a poet was actually a thing that a person was in the world. You know, like I didn't realize you could be that. Just like I didn't realize that you could be a trans person or even what that was. Um, and now it's like what I, I mean, it's what I do now. Like it's, you know, poetry, I guess, is not like a job in the sense that like most people don't make their money doing it. Even like the most successful poets, like 
make their money from teaching or lecturing or or whatever. But, you know, for a long time I was, like, too embarrassed to say that I was a poet. But now I say that I'm a poet and, like, you know, I don't even, like, tell people that I'm a teacher unless they, like, ask how I make money because, like, because I consider it my job and, and my vocation um, along with music. And, of course, like, music and poetry are completely the same, um, even though culturally they're, like, a little bit different. Like, for me, they're, like, totally intertwined. Um, I'm not sure if that... Are there ways that poetry is sort of, like, like especially shaped kind of your sense of who you are, whether that's around gender or race or... Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. It, it absolutely has and does. And, you know, one of the... I mentioned like the pronoun stuff at the beginning and like discovering these like different kinds of pronouns in middle middle English. And you know, one of the things that I discovered when I started studying medieval poetry in graduate school was that like things could be spelled any way. Like like before the the printing press was invented people just spelled things like however and that kind of like blew my mind and in a good way like opened my mind and so I started realizing that I could like spell things different ways and and I think that there was something about this like experimentation with spelling in particular or like you know if you wanted to be academic you might say like these like received ideas of how like standardization of language or whatever like you know that I I, like realized I could that it was like it could be a place like a site for play play. and and that I could like somehow constitute my body through that like which is to say like my poetic body my linguistic body but that was like for me, kind of like the same thing as my physical body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was really hard to kind of write overtly about these things, um, which is to say, like the way that language constituted my sense of my gender identity or like my racial identity, because there's so much pressure to like be those things and like and to like weaponize your identity in all these ways and so I didn't really I so I kind of like obfuscated those things and didn't write directly about them um, until pretty recently and um, so my new book that I just gave you is called Of Mongrelitude and it's kind of about that question it's like about being a mongrel like you know a mixed race like mixed gender person like but also mongrel in the sense of like you know mongrels like used in a disparaging way um, to describe like a dog that's Mm -hmm. not like a purebred whatever Um, but it's also used to describe language. Mm-hmm. So like to describe like a Creole or like a hybridized tongue. 
So I was thinking on the model of like negritude, mongrelitude. And it was really the first time that I tried in somewhat more overt ways to talk about like how my body has been formed through language and and the ways that I might like not just be like a passive um, victim <laughs> of the way that like language has been put on me in these various ways but that I like might wield it like in a way that can like give me some kind of power and of course I've been like practicing this I've been practicing like the wielding of language for a really long time but um, but this was the first time I had tried more like deliberately to to speak to to speak to my body and to speak my body I know that sounds really cheesy but like it's true unfortunately okay uh, I'll talk a little bit more about um what you think about the pronoun it? What I think about it? Um, Why you like it? Yeah, I. I mean, you're. You can't hear this, but you're smiling when you say it, and, and so there's. I get the sense that it might please you too, um, and it, I don't know. It pleases me. Like mm-hmm. I can't. I don't know if I'm going to be able to describe it very well, but like, I've been trying for so many years to like find a pronoun that like felt right and you know when people use he for me I don't correct them it's fine when people use she for me it upsets me but whatever um and I don't have a problem with they like I think they is great like I love how much more it's come into use um and I love that it's like multiple and you know and there is a very old pedantic argument that says like oh you can't use they for like a singular gender neutral pronoun because like they is plural and blah 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 but like there's you know there's examples of singular they going back to the medieval period and it certainly it exists in Shakespeare and in Agatha Christie and now they use it on NPR so it's like you know so that argument doesn't really hold anything anymore um there's something like so elegant about it to me and and I really think of it as a great leveler and you know for me like in like and there's kind of like a spiritual argument for this for me which is that like you know I I believe that I'm connected to like plants and animals and like and to me it's like an honor to have the same pronoun as a plant or as an animal um, or as an object even like everything is like sacred and and to me, like it implicitly makes that argument, um, or maybe I don't know. Maybe if you, maybe it doesn't make that argument, but to me, that's what it what it means and why it feels so good. Um, because it's is this kind of acknowledgement that that everything has 
has the divine in it. Have you had, um, have there been relationships with other than human entities that have been especially important for you? Yeah, yes. Um, I had a dog for 16 years. I had a dog companion, um, a pit bull, and named Snoopy, Snoop, Snoo. And yeah, and towards the end of of her life, um, like I would sort of like kind of jokingly refer to her as it, but then it sort of became real, like, and I just started referring to it as it. Like at first it was just sort of funny, but then it was like, oh yeah, because like her quote unquote gender always seemed like really inscrutable to me. like. And like, who knows if this was just like me, like projecting whatever onto her, but like, but I really felt like her gender was like not either. Like, or maybe like that's just maybe any animal. I don't know. Like, who knows? But like, she sort of became an it. And it, what first became a joke later seemed to be like more correct and appropriate for for that creature mm-hmm. um, and she was like my constant companion for 16 years and um, and taught me a lot about like how how to um, she taught me a lot about love and and this idea of like being with a creature and you know like being like friends with a creature and not thinking my thinking of myself like as like her companion and not as like someone who owned her or like or whatever like clearly i was like the alpha but it um but I don't. I don't like this language around like owning mm-hmm. animals, you know. Yeah. I like that idea about the inscrutability of it. Sort of. It reminds me of like you know like when we Freud in English like it's id, but that just means it, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the part of the self that is inaccessible. Yeah, yeah, and so. and, and inscrutability. I mean. I'm glad that you said that because that was always like my goal with my gender, I guess. Like, like I want, like, there's some perverse part of me that like wants people not to know. Yeah, like a pronoun of obfuscation, mm-hmm. a cult pronoun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, and I've had people say, like, say this about me like in a in a bad way um like what is that or like or like refer to me as it because they don't know what I am and when I'm not in danger from that estimation that's something that really pleases me but to be realistic like those times when people have referred to me like as it um, it means that they are um, 
confused and and that leads to violence mm-hmm. that that can lead to violence yeah and there's also a long history of taking back the the terms of our you know dehumanization exactly mm-hmm. um are there any ways that like you that like you feel like I'm New York City being queer or trans or whatever in New York City has changed over the years since you first arrived here? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was kind of surprised when I moved to New York after being in the San Francisco area. I think I thought it would be the same. like which is to say like just as open as it is there. Mm-hmm. But I think it's not. Um, I think it's like more open culturally in a lot of ways and it's a lot more diverse in a lot of ways. But I think that um, maybe because it's bigger or because there's like, m- like more of a diversity of types of communities that it's mm-hmm. somewhat more queer phobic than the Bay Area is let's face it like a bubble of that mm-hmm. kind of thing of safety um, and so I've experienced a lot more um, harassment here than I have in the Bay Area mm-hmm. and my sense is that it, I don't know I don't think it's really changed that much since 2007 yeah I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. The lesbian bars are gone. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's one of the that's one of the casualties of gentrification. Yeah. I think the mm-hmm. gentrification has gotten a lot like because we I moved here in two thousand two, so not so much longer before you. Uh huh. I think gentrification has gotten a lot worse. Yeah, the lesbian bars have closed down in San Francisco, too. Yeah, that's true. The Lex has gone mm-hmm. down. So, yeah. Or the lesbian bar, I should say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is there anything that you would want about, like, queer trans, like NYC, that you'd want folks to especially know or remember in the future? I'm also um, mention the time very quickly. I, you know, what I really miss is the... There was a place called the Big Apple Ranch. Was Did you gone? ever go? It's gone now. Oh, God. So the Big Apple Ranch was like this um, gay or whatever, queer, I guess, but really gay, mm-hmm. um, two-stepping venue in kind of this no-man's land in between Union Square and Chelsea, and you could mm-hmm. go on Saturday nights and... And there would be like a lesson, a two-stepping lesson, and then they would play music, and you could two-step with any old type of person mm-hmm. that you yeah, wanted. What kind of folks would go there? Mainly right. gay men. Gay men. But there were also like trans people and lesbians, and um, yeah, it was a kind of a beautiful thing. But it doesn't exist anymore. Were they like like older, like or like twenties, thirties, forties, all kinds? Thirties through sixties. It was like yeah. some older people. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty great. Yeah. Um, look at my little list. You can look at them too. Is there anything that you that we haven't talked about that you feel like is a whole or something you want to? Um, 
Not off the top of my head. Um, I don't think so. I think you've covered all of the relevant mm -hmm. <laughs> parts of me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is to say, poetry and music. Yeah, great. Well, I guess. Why don't we wrap up? Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It's, it's really an honor. Really grateful. Thank you. It's an honor to be part of this no, project. Thank we're you. We're delighted Richard. to have you. Thank you. Press.